Good morning. I'm Rick Hollinger, and I'll be reading today's scripture. It comes from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. If you'd please stand. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raises us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared us in, prepared in advance for us to do. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. We're uh, glad you're here with us. And even for those of you who are online, thanks for tuning in. Uh, you know that we're in a series on the entire New Testament. And today I'm going to give the essence, what I consider to be the essence of the book of Ephesians. But I begin with a quote, a quote from an author who has passed on. He had um, an interesting way with words. He would get right to the point. He was pithy. He was sometimes in your face and controversial. He was English. His name was G.K. Chesterton. G.K. Chesterton said this on one occasion. He said, whatever else is true about man, you could insert the word humanity, it is certainly true that man is not what he was meant to be. That seems to be a good summary of the human condition. As a matter of fact, it seems like that summary is the kind of thing that undergirds all Paul's theology concerning grace, the undeserved merit of God. We are not who we were made to be, and thus we need grace. Thus we need redemption. For that reason, we need Christ. The book of Ephesians has been called by many people a mini book of Romans, and I like that description. Because the major themes in the book of Romans are summarized in Ephesians. The other reason I like that description is because in other epistles, Paul is not known for his, well, shall we say, economy of language. He goes on and on. His sentences are long. They should have more punctuations in them if his grammar teacher had taught him well, right? We get that about Paul. But in Ephesians, it seems like he's more concise. He just gets to the point. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you something personal. 
It's my favorite book in the New Testament. Not that the others aren't important, but I love Ephesians. It just says it. It gets to the point. So what is the point? Well, first of all, the point is in our reading today, the first reading, which was a responsive reading. Paul says, praise to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He chose us before him, before the creation or the foundation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his dear sons, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he's freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have the redemption from sin. Paul says at the very beginning, I want to emphasize the most important thing in this whole book. Don't you love an author that gives you the summary at the beginning? Paul says this is what it's all about. It's about grace. In chapter 2, you could divide Paul's comments up into several different sections. I've narrowed them down to three. I actually had four, and I'm going to call it three. First is this, Paul says, you were chosen. Second, Paul says, you've been redeemed. And third, Paul says, you've been set apart. First, you were chosen. Sometimes when we read Ephesians chapter 1 and hear the word predestination, we get into endless arguments about what predestination is. And we dig into details And quite frankly, most of the time, all of that argumentation misses the point. As a matter of fact, arguments about predestination after almost 30 years of looking at this stuff has struck me as a theologian's playground, okay? That's what it seems like. Why does it miss the point? Because here's the point. (laughs) The point is this. You are God's handiwork, You are God's because you were chosen by God. You don't get credit for any of this. If you did, we wouldn't call it grace. God chose you. You couldn't have chosen God. In effect, Paul's saying, you know what? You can't choose yourself. You are yourself. And God said to you, I choose you. Second, we're outside the family, says Paul. We're born into sin. We struggle with sin. It enslaves us. You can't adopt yourself. It's got to be a family that adopts you. In this case, Paul uses the image of a father who adopts children. You're outside the family. You've been adopted. Third major emphasis of this notion of predestination and grace. Here it is. You were once slaves. And because you were a slave to your own sin and a slave to the master, who's the master of sin, you couldn't possibly have gained your own freedom from yourself. 
You're the problem. So you've been given freedom through Christ, something you couldn't give yourself. You've probably tried, but you failed. Think of Romans chapter 7. Paul says, this is the story I'm talking about. You were chosen. On several different occasions, Paul uses the image of slavery, which is abhorrent to us. Because we know something about slavery after all these years of history that makes us turn on the inside. But Paul uses the language of slave and free. You know, in the history of every horrible historical event, there's also some glimmer of light and hope and grace. And in the historical tragic history of slavery in our country, you may have heard a story or two that goes like this. They're true stories. A slave was on the auction block going to the highest bidder as if he or she was chattel And some rich man steps forward and bids on the slave. And the price continues to go up and up and up. And he doesn't care. He just keeps bidding and bidding and bidding. And finally, he gets the slave. And then he turns to the slave and says, I bought you for your freedom. You're not my slave. Here's your freedom. Go. Dark history, powerful image. Paul says you were enslaved to sin. Your master was Satan. And Jesus Christ, by his grace, purchased you with his own blood. And he calls you to a new kind of life. You've been redeemed, says Paul. You were once a slave, now you've been chosen, and you've been redeemed. You were enslaved to the habits of sin and to your master, and I've redeemed you from those chains. How does sin enslave us? We could talk about that for a long time, couldn't we? Let me just use one illustration. Just one sin, the sin of anger. So let me be very personal about the sin of anger. Sometimes I like it because my anger makes me feel powerful. You can ask my wife and those who know me and love me the best. That's when my mind is working the best. As a matter of fact, it not only makes me feel powerful, well, it makes me feel righteous. Because after all, I think I'm right. And then, and then when I realize what is happening to me because of the anger, I realize I'm not in control of the anger. The anger is in control of me. 
I have stepped in to slavery, to my anger. That's how sin does it to us. We step into it because it feels good. We walk into it because it makes us feel alive. And then before long, it enslaves us. It's got a chain around our neck and a ball on our ankle. And we are not becoming who we were made to be. So what is this slavery to sin? What is the kind of sin that enslaves us? I mentioned one, but Paul mentions many. I just want to read it to you, what he says about sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. In Galatians 5, the epistle that precedes this, he says the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. In the epistle we're reading now, Near the end, in chapter 5, Paul puts it this way in summary form. But among you, since you have been chosen, since you have been redeemed, since God has purchased you through Christ with his own blood, since that is true, among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people nor should there be any obscenity foolish talk or coarse joking which are out of place but rather there should be thanksgiving for as you know and can be sure no immoral, impure, greedy. Such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. That's, that's a long list, but it's not all-encompassing. It's a provocative list, especially for our contemporary culture, but Paul couldn't care less. Because his contemporary culture was even more, to use an old word, licentious. In his contemporary culture, sexual immorality had been raised to a level of worship. In the temples, people moved into orgies in order to experience a high level of divinity. If Paul were here today, he'd say the same thing. He wouldn't change his tune. There's nothing uncommon about this list called the sins of the flesh. Any first century rabbi would have said the same thing. However, 
However, there may have been something surprising about the category of the sins of the flesh that extend to what we consider to be the sins of the Spirit. Let me remind you that he already said these are the sins of the flesh. Not just sexual immorality, but a whole bunch more. And there are things like anger, me, witchcraft, not me. Hatred, me. Discord, I try not to. Jealousy, I know that one. Fits of rage. I've been there. Selfish ambitions. Dissensions. Envy. Check, check, check. So what does Paul say? They're all sins. And people who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Some of us might look at the list and say, well, those big immoral sins are not mine. There's no difference. They're all sins. And every single one of them needs grace. As a matter of fact, it seems like to me when I look at the way Paul talks about grace and sin and forgiveness, not surprisingly, he's following the teachings of Jesus who on one occasion when addressing the Pharisees and anybody else who would listen, and that includes us, he said, let's talk about murder. I'll give you a definition of murder. Murder is when you hate someone. Let's talk about adultery. I'll give you a definition of adultery. Adultery is when you lust after another woman. Okay, let's have a show of hands of any of you who is not guilty of both of those. I didn't think so. Jesus says grace comes to us because we need it, because we need to be redeemed, because we're ensnared by our own sins, and that's just a small list. It's the nature of grace. So, the third point, not only are we chosen, not only are we redeemed, we are third set apart. Set apart for a purpose. Set apart to be holy. I love one translation of this passage. You've heard the words, you're God's handiwork. You've heard the words, you're God's workmanship. There's another way to translation, translate this, is that you are God's masterpiece. You know why I like that one? Because it's an artistic imagery. And when I read it, I think of the great artists and sculptors of days gone by. And I remember looking with absolute delight at Michelangelo's 
carvings in Italy. And seeing the face, and seeing the hands, and the veins on the hands, and on the legs, and the seriousness of purpose. And I thought to myself, wow, look what he's done. What he's done is he's pulled out of what is ordinary. What is so obvious that I frequently didn't see it. That's what a great artist does. He takes the ordinary, the material, and he shows you what you didn't see to begin with. Oh, you saw it, but you didn't. You walked right past it, but you didn't catch it. I also remember an occasion, I think I've mentioned it before, my wife and I were in France and we were in Monet's garden. Famous painting of that garden. And it was beautiful, really was. Walked through it on tour, enjoyed flowers. They're basically the same flowers that he painted. They've kept it pristine. Matter of fact, when he was away, he would send back letters when he was in other parts of Europe giving instructions about how to care for it so it didn't lose its glory. Walked through the garden, this is beautiful. Then we got to the end of the tour and we sat down. My wife said, look at this. I said, look at what? She said, the garden. Well, unlike me, she takes pictures all the time. Posts them on wherever you post them, Instagram or something. Anyway, it was, it was a picture of the garden. And all of a sudden, I saw things I hadn't seen before. Colors came to me that I wasn't experiencing in the moment. The beauty that Monet saw and gave us leapt off that screen. And I was aware of the glory that I hadn't seen before. Paul says, you are God's masterpiece. That's what you are. And God is the great artist. And he's looking at you. And he's seeing things that other people do not. That's why he chose you. He's looking at you and he sees things that you do not see about yourself. And he's so pleased with you. He sacrificed his own blood to redeem you and to set you apart. Do you have any idea what God sees in you? What God sees in the other? On occasion, we remember some of this through especially the Psalms. When the psalmist says the heavens declare the glory of God, they're the work of his hands. When he talks about actually the creatures of the earth praising, when he talks about us as made in his image, sometimes the psalmist helps us see it like it's a masterpiece. 
So I want to finish the sermon by using the title of a book that was published in the 1970s. A book you may have heard of. It was written by a man called Francis Schaeffer. The title of the book was, How Shall We Then Live? So that's the question. After we realize we've been chosen and redeemed and set apart, how should we live? The first thing is, we should never, ever forget the deep nature of grace. Let me put that positively. How should we live? We should always daily remember the deep nature of grace and not let us forget it. We should always be overwhelmed with it. We should never look at ourselves and think we're all that and righteous. That's how we should live. Overwhelmed by grace. Second point about how we should live is we should not pretend that our sin, our sins, you got some that I don't have. Problems, inclinations. We should not pretend that our sins are less important than the other sins. We should not say to ourselves, well, at least I'm not doing that. You know what that reminds me of? I don't know if it reminds you of anything. It reminds me of the Pharisee on the street corner that Jesus said was praying out loud for everybody to hear and said, thank God I'm at least not like them. The last thing that should come out of our mouth. We understand the deep nature of sin and we realize that we are the problem. We understand the deep nature of grace and we realize that we don't deserve it. We understand the deep love of God and we're overwhelmed by it. That's how we should live. We should live with hearts of forgiveness. If you don't understand forgiveness, you don't forgive the other. If you don't forgive the other, it's questionable as to whether or not you understand forgiveness. To those who have been given much, much is required. And forgiveness is required. There are a few things that are more revolutionary in the history of religions than the notion of forgiveness and grace that was introduced by Jesus and expounded upon by Paul and the church. As a matter of fact, in the first century culture that Paul was immersed in, forgiveness was seen as a weakness, not a strength. Plutarch, a Greek historian, put it this way. He said that the sign of a good person was being useful to his friends and terrible to his enemies. Can you think of anything more counter to the teachings of Jesus than that? Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. So in order to live the way we're supposed to live, we have to live lives of forgiveness. In order to live the way we're supposed to live, we have to see the image of God. 
in the other. Just like Jesus did, walking the streets of Palestine and seeing the image of God in people who were marginalized. He saw it. He saw what they could be. And he called them to follow him. So how should we live? That way. Seeing the image of God in the other. Let me add one more thing about the image of God. Sometimes the hardest thing to do is to see the image of God in yourself. If you're self-critical, if you haven't truly embraced grace, and I tell you, that's one of my problems. I got lots of them, so that's not the only one. But when I look in the mirror, I frequently don't see the image of God. I see somebody who's falling short. I see somebody who's a failure. I see somebody who's not up to the task. But when I look in the mirror, I see the same face that God sees. And God sees in me his image. I've got to work on that. I really do. How should we then live? We should live Christ-centered lives as opposed to self-centered lives. I'll give you a quote from William Barclay. He says, the essence of the world's standard is that it sets self in the center The essence of the Christian standard is that it sets Christ in the center. The essence of the worldly man or woman is, as someone has said, that he or she knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. The world's motive is profit, the Christian dynamic is the desire to serve. How should we then live? Acknowledge the radical nature of grace. Don't pretend that our sins are less important than others. Forgive those who do us wrong. Search for the image of God in the other and in ourselves. Live a Christ-centered life and not a self-centered life. Paul ends this whole passage with a phrase that says, you are God's workmanship masterpiece created beforehand to do good works. Was he talking about good works that result in salvation? Absolutely not. If you know anything about Paul, he doesn't talk that way. He's talking about good works that are done because of your overwhelming understanding and love for the grace of God. And then you do the good works. I I recommend, maybe two of you will do it, that you go home this week and make your own list. 
what are the good works that God has chosen for me to do? I, I think if you do that, your list is going to keep growing. There's so many. I'll give you just a few, and you go from there. These are the good works that God calls us to. To love our neighbors and our enemies. To care for the poor. To reach out to the marginalized. And to do all of this so that people will look at us and glorify our heavenly Father. So that people will glorify God, not glorify us. Or to put it another way, if I was an artist, and I'm not, I would create an image of myself that you could see straight through. And behind that image would be the cross. That's how we're supposed to live. God help us to do it. And let us be thankful for the opportunity. Will you pray with me? Lord, you've been gracious to uh, choose us. Couldn't have chosen ourselves. We're delighted that you redeemed us. We couldn't have done that. And we're just overwhelmed that you set us apart for your purposes. Help us to remember, especially this week, that when we race after whatever our sins that so easily beset us are, that when we race towards those sins and find temporary satisfaction and enjoy them, and then we realize that they actually are enslaving us, we'll remember and we'll repent and we'll turn back to you and to be the people you called us to be. We thank you for this notion of grace that in spite of the fact that we continue to fail, you continue to pursue. When we mess it up royally, you keep coming. That is grace. Thank you for your grace. May we be your masterpiece in this world. In the name of Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.